this morning. Um, and so we can think this is a little bit about, we're thinking about money, power, and love, and maybe there's a little bit of a course correction that we can think about, and what is Jesus teaching uh, people who are following him or want to follow him? Um, so that's what we're looking at today. Now, let me just check this works. I'm just, sorry, is it on? It's always a challenge, this. On, you see, it has to go red to be on, doesn't it? Good. All right. So we offers. That's good. Um, now, in this passage, uh, we've got um, a section on money and there's a section on power, essentially. And because it's gift day and I was going through what should we actually talk about, I thought I can't really skip over this bit on money. Um, let's just focus in on a little bit um, and see what you know, we can say. Now, really, this is not um, a passage about giving. Um, this is maybe more of an attitude to, to money and you know, wh- where Jesus wants to challenge us. And we've got the story. Um, there's a young man. Now, this young man is wealthy. We realize that. He is somebody who wants to follow Jesus. He's maybe not particularly religious. He's certainly not cast in the sort of the Pharisee way. He's not, you know, he's, there's a genuine aspect to him wanting to follow Jesus. But he follows the law, and he follows, you know, he, you can see he's probably a good person. Um, and he probably has the kind of, he's the person who you'd see, I want to be like that person. I reckon that's how he was viewed within his society. He, he probably had it, and he probably had something that people were after. And so, and you see that later on in the, the, the story, the disciples, when, when uh, you know, Jesus has said, you need to give everything away, they're shocked. They're like, well, if that person can't do it, who can? That's their question to Jesus. Now, he asks Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? Pause for a second. How would you answer that if somebody came to you and said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is all about what does it mean to be good? What does it really mean to be good? And he starts off with, uh, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And there's an interesting thing that he's playing here, which is obviously drawing the, the young person's attention into, well, I'm actually stating that I'm God. There's the, the, the a fairly well-known section that uh, C.S. Lewis writes. He says, a man who is merely a man but does the sort of things and claims the things that Jesus said um, would be a great moral teacher. He would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who is a poached egg or he'd be the devil of hell. Uh, you must make your choice. Either this man is, was or is the son of God, or he's a madman or something worse. And certainly later on, we get to the claims that Jesus makes. And um, you can't really say, oh, he's just a good person. What does it really mean to be good, is what Jesus, uh, what, uh, Jesus is looking at. And then he, t- he says something a little peculiar. Maybe we've got a slide for this. And it's a little bit small. But he says, you know the commandments. And then he goes and reads the last six of the Ten Commandments. Um, and he's missing out a whole section. And all the ones that he focuses on are how we relate to one another. What does he say by doing that? It's, in some ways, that is the key of understanding this answer and this whole intercourse between this guy who's saying, how do I get internal life, and Jesus. is What is he not saying? So he says, you know the commandments. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. I shall not give false testimony. Do not defraud on your father and mother. And what is he missing? He's missing all of the ones around the relationship that we have with God. The 
first one. And in some ways, all of the other commandments rest on the first one. You shall have no other God before me. Everything else really sits on top of that. No idols, no misusing of God's name, having a day of rest, keeping it holy. And so that's, that's really the point that, is, is, um, that Jesus is making, or certainly the, the lack of saying that is, uh, is what he's, he's getting at. And you could think of somebody who says, well, I'm a good person. I do these good things. It's the observance of a, a, a good life. Um, and yet there's a heart problem. And that's what Jesus wants to point out. There's a heart problem. He sees the man and he loves him, but he knows that he's got an idol. And for him, his idol is money. That's where he's put his trust. Um, and it's in his wealth. There's a, there's a verse from Matthew. <coughs> No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And that's the problem that this young person has got, his love for wealth. Now, Jesus has quite a practical response. Because you might think, well, you know, you love God, and that, that would be the response that Jesus says, you know, do the bits that, you, you know, that I've put my finger on. But he makes it very practical. He says, you should give away. Now, I, this is my conjecture, so take it or leave it. I suspect this person was giving according to, say, a tithing um, you know, perspective. I, I suspect that. I, I may be wrong on this. But he certainly is eager to say, I've grown up my whole life following the observant laws of a relationship. So I suspect that it wasn't that he wasn't giving at all, but he had still got a love for money which went beyond, um, you know, he, he put it in first place, essentially. And I think sometimes we can do that. We can, you know, we can sometimes build, build a little wall around our own giving. We can think, you know, this far but no further. And I think Jesus is saying, where is your real trust? And he's giving him a practical response, which is to give beyond, just a little bit further than it's comfortable to. And there's a story as well of the... Um, the old lady who gives a couple of pennies and he says that person has given more you know than the people who gave out of their wealth um and so it's somebody it's it this is somebody who i think was giving i might be wrong but he's saying your trust is in it and when we give it slights it just weakens the the kind of grip that money has on us it helps us to kind of reaffirm this is our trust is in you god all of the that we've got comes from you um and you also get, um, I hope, and we, you know, this is, we all hope, that you start to see blessing from where you give and actually some enjoyment from what is being done with your wealth, but in the community of the kingdom. Right? It's not all about my choice, but it's what is God going to do with um, the wealth that we can collectively give to him, give back to him. So where does it leave us? Well, Jesus is um, essentially asking us to examine our attitude to money. Where does it sit in our priorities? Have we allowed it to creep up to pole position? Um, you know, and if, if you do, if that's where it is, then maybe giving is something that you need to think about. Is this a challenge, a hard challenge, that God is kind of saying, you know, you do this. But remember what he says at the beginning. He said he looked at him and he loved him. If Jesus does this from a position of love, How are we doing for time? Um, 
have a section here. I was wondering, should I cover it or not? I want to just throw in a few things about giving, because it's not really a passage on giving, but I just wanted to just touch on a couple of the, the um, verses that come to mind for me, just to because we don't really talk about giving much, and I just thought it'd be an opportunity to, but I'll, I'll do this a little bit speedily, if that's okay. Um, and maybe this is something which we can talk about afterwards. So tithing is giving 10% of our money, and it's actually a principle which goes back to the Old Testament, and it's not something which was necessarily established in, in the law, though it was talked about in the law. And I think that that's key in terms of whether we think, is it applicable? As we follow, you know, we say we follow the Spirit of God, we don't necessarily live according to the law. Is tithing something that we still need to consider? Well, Abraham, um, there's a story of Abraham, and he meets this person called Mel Melchizedek, who's the Prince of Salem. Jesus is kind of referred to in sort of in his place, um, in Hebrews, and after there's this battle, and I, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but essentially Abraham gives 10% of his plunder to Melchizedek. It says Melchizedek brought out the bread and wine. He was the priest of God of the Most High, and he blessed Abraham. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So this principle of tithing actually goes back before the law, and that's, that's somewhat significant. Secondly, uh, tithing is from the first fruits. It talks about in a number of places. Um, you can see that in numbers. That means it's you do it at the beginning of your, you know, your cycle of of pay, or you know, after you've paid. You don't. It's not the leftovers that we consider. What does God deserve? Um, it's something which we do intentionally. Sorry, dry mouth. Um, in Malachi, it talks about bring the full tithe to the house of the Lord. Um, and I think in that, um, it also kind of makes us think about where do we give. Actually, it talks about that so that there's food in the house. So I think there's a responsibility as well on the church in terms of how do we use that money. And um, that comes out from that verse too. Um, Jesus is very clear about not uh, making our giving overly religious. And there's, there's parables on that. Um, and certainly, there's this one of the two prayers, you know, Bless me, because I've, you know, I've, I'm a giver and all the rest of it. Um, and so, it's it's something which um, we need to do with God's heart. He he, he kind of says you give, um, but you've kind of forgotten all of the rest of uh, justice, mercy, love. And so he wants to have integrity in our lives. It's not just about giving; it should be done privately without boasting. And finally, this is the verse that uh, James read earlier on, from uh, from. Uh, Paul's letter, I think I've got it there. Sorry. And as we just finish this section of thinking about giving, um, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. Um, don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. So this is about our heart, and God loves it when our heart is orientated um, to him. Okay, so that's giving, that's money, and a little bit about, um, you know, its, its position within the kingdom. We're going to look on about power now. And we've got this interesting story with uh, James and John. And this is after the, uh, the um, transfiguration. So if you remember last week, uh, James, John, and Peter were up the mountain, Jesus kind of glowing white. And, um, and then... They said, can we ask you, a, you know, we want a favor. Jesus says, what is it? 
Let us sit at your right and left-hand side in glory. Now, what is going on there? That's a kind of rather audacious and bold request, isn't it? Um, he's just said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. Um, and, you know, in some ways, their question, it kind of gives them a bit, it's a little bit of a clue of their misunderstanding of what um, of Jesus' mission was. You know, they think that glory meant coming in power and prestige and that he'd need henchmen, you know, we'll sit on your left and right hand side, we'll be your advisors, we'll be your bodyguard, you know, we'll, we'll help kind of do the ruling. And Jesus equates that to him and I think that's how, how we can understand that's what they're thinking in their minds. He says, you know that those who, reg- who, you know those who reg- are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high and their high officials exercise authority over them. And it's that sort of just, this is the power and the prestige um, that they were after. And Jesus wanted to just turn it on its head. They had a very different view of what glory was to what Jesus was expecting for his glory. He was heading for the cross. That was his understanding of what being glorified was. In the prayer at the end of John, it really talks about when I will be glorified. He talk, you know, he's talking about um, that with his father. And when they asked to sit on the left and the right-hand side, he said, you can't do that. Those places have already been set aside. And what happens on the cross? He's, there's two criminals who's ha- who are hanging on his left and right. They're not for James and John. Those places had already been prepared. So his view of his glory was entirely different from what James and John were expecting. And then he finishes this section uh, with, you know, a pretty well-known uh, verse. This thing is rubbish. <laughs> right. Oh, what? Here we go. All right. Um, so, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that, certainly that last verse you know, gets plucked out and put on fridges and stuff like that. Um, a ransom for many, what does that mean? And actually this word ransom is not used many times in the Bible. Um, and, you know... You, you, there's probably a danger of building your entire theology just on that, one, on that one word, but it certainly shows a little bit of what Jesus is doing. And up until now, he's said that he's going to die on the cross, but he hasn't actually said why. This is the first time when Jesus gives a clue as to what he understands his mission is, to be a ransom for many. And a ransom is, I'm sure you know, it's something that you would pay for a captive. Who is the captive? Well, that's all of us. Um, Jesus says in uh, John, or he's recorded saying in John, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And that's where, this is where you can see the heart of the gospel and what's actually happening on the cross. So all sin, that's you know, when we break our, our relationship with God, um, essentially going back to that first verse in, in, uh, in you know, Ten Commandments, you should have no other God before me. Everything kind of hangs on that and... And our sin is essentially anything that we do, which is not that. I mean, all of the other consequences are like that. And when we do that, we're effectively handing over our, our, our love 
rather from God to other things, to the spiritual powers and authorities, and our life is forfeit. There's a, there's a quite helpful illustration of this in the story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't, I'm sure everyone knows this. That um, You've got Edmund, who's betrayed his siblings um, for his own personal gain, and he gets caught, and there's this sort of you know, battle towards the end. But the White Witch has still got Edmund, and, he goes, and she goes to Aslan, and she says, uh, so Aslan is the sort of story of, of Jesus in, the, of, um, in this story. And she says, you know, every traitor belongs to me, as I have lawful prey, and that every treachery I have a right to kill. And so, continued the witch, that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Come and take it then, said the bull, with a man's head and the great billowing voice. Fool, said the witch. With a savage smile and almost a snarl, do you really think that your master can rob me my rights by mere force? See, that's the, that's the position that we find ourselves in, essentially helpless and, you know, um, you know, we're like traitors. I don't know who watched that traitors program on. We loved the traitors, didn't we? Where if you, anyway, this, for those people who don't know, there's on BBC, there's this, there's this kind of game show, social... Um, well, it's a reality. Is it reality TV? Anyway, it's this thing where you essentially... There's a game which is played out on TV, and a few people are traitors, and they're hidden amongst all of the contestants, and the rest are faithful. And, uh, and they try and scupper it and win the prize for themselves. It's very exciting. Um, but here's the thing. We're all traitors, right? It's not just a few of us. We all are. We've all fallen short. And that's the power of the cross. That's, where, that's what Jesus is heading for. Um, it says in Colossians, he cancelled the record of the charges against us and took them away by nailing them to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Hallelujah. So how do we respond? And the thing about this verse is that, and it's often taken out of context, it's all about service. Effectively, what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to serve, and I serve, and this is what it looks like. It looks like the cross. It's a cross-shaped service. You know, James and John, they were seeking personal power. And Jesus wants to show self-sacrifice and service. Um, just a little aside, a bit about John. So John is an interesting character, because in this story, we've just seen him kind of muck up loads of things, right? I mean, he's just, you kind of think, I can't really imagine being in that situation. He's, he's, um, I mean, he's called, uh, he's got a brother. So these, these two guys, they're brothers. They're probably one of the first disciples that followed Jesus. Um, they were fishermen, um, and Jesus called them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. So they were probably sort of fairly hot-headed people. And, um, you know, he... he when they were offended, when they went in Samaria, he said, should we bring down the fire of you know, heaven to like, destroy this village? So they're kind of like going for it. And um, you know, he's, he's, he's had a complete transformation. If you read his, his, uh, the things that he wrote in the Bible, you think this isn't the same person that we're reading about um, in these stories. He was probably quite ashamed of the, the things that he said and did. Where did that transformation come from? Like, how did he change from being somebody who's, you know, wanting to cool down the fire of heaven to destroy a village um, to somebody who just talks about love for his entire, 
you know, half of his, his letters, the person who he says, this is the, I'm the one who, who Jesus loved. Um, there's a, the, the tr- Christ, sorry, Christian tradition has it that uh, John lived an old, you know, into old age, unlike many of his, um, the other disciples who were, who were martyred. Um, so there's a story of him after he was in Patmos, um, allegedly, this is the, the, the story, it's from Jerome, so this is written around 3rd, 4th century. He said, The blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until an extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church. He could not muster the voice to speak words, but in individual gatherings he said nothing more but, Little children, love one another. The disciples and the brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same ver- words, finally said, Teacher, why do you always say that? And he replied it with this line, because it was the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. And that's the, so John writes in his, in his letter, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. And it was John who was at the foot of the cross who saw Jesus die. He was, uh, he was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was with Peter when he saw the empty tomb. And I think it, his transformation came through realizing this is what love is. This is really what love is. And that's, that's what he writes about. And that John's letters were written probably from Ephesus um, around 100 AD. So they're some of the oldest books in the Bible. And it's all about love. So what does sacrificial love look like? This is just to finish off. Uh, what does it mean to have a servant heart? Well, it's love that underpins all of our gifts from God. Whether we know the Bible back to front or not, love is our foundation for how we understand it. Love is the yardstick by which we decide, is this from God? Should I say this thing? Should I do this thing? Um, we sometimes try and add love onto everything else that we've got, but sometimes love comes at a price and a personal cost. Love doesn't hurry people. It allows God to work. And with love, you can be wronged. Love will forgive and forgive and go on forgiving, even if you're in the right. In, in fact, especially if you're in the right, Love doesn't take sides. It will look at the good in every situation. Love is kind. And love is the motivation behind any gift of money or time that we have and that we give. That's the transformation of love. So to sum up, we've looked at money and Jesus' challenge to us um, and to the position that we have it in our lives and to think about our giving as a response maybe. We've thought about power and our response in service, and then we've looked at the transformational love of Jesus and how it can transform us. Thank you for listening. Let's just um, have a moment of prayer and just quietness as we think, is there something that God's got in that as a challenge? And then later on we'll just sing a song.